0: Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. Hello, listeners, and welcome to East Asia Now. My name is David Fields, and I am the Associate Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin Madison. I am joined today by Kaiser Guo, Editor at Large of the China Project and the co founder of the Seneca podcast where he orchestrates and conducts some of the most important and insightful conversations about China happening today. The Seneca podcast is required listening today for all those interested in China, in think tanks, in government, and in the academy. Kaiser, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you
1: very much for having me, David. It's uh, wonderful to
0: be here. And I just have to say that I've been a Seneca listener for about three years. When I got my current position at the Center for East Asian Studies, Um, I was I got some very good advice, which is, you know, my background is as a historian of U.S.-Korean relations. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the center, we have to cover everything. So, you know, it's no more just all Korea all the time for me. And so I needed to find a way to kind of bone up on my knowledge of China and Japan, but without doing a second PhD <laughs> on Chinese history or another prelims um, category on it. So I thought, I wonder if there's a podcast out there somewhere where I can kind of get into this conversation and get a sense of it. And so I think I just went on Google and, and searched China podcast and uh, yours was the first came up and I started listening and I don't think I've ever looked back. And it's it's just been immensely helpful for me to broaden my horizons, but also what I love about your podcast is someone like me who's not a China specialist can get into the conversations that are going on around China and, and really engage with it in an understandable way. It's, it's not just a podcast for China experts. It's a podcast that includes China experts, but the dialogue is really accessible to anyone.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, hopefully they're not thinking of themselves as China experts, but yeah, I mean, we're all flattered to be described that way. <laughs> uh, hopefully we all possess enough humility not to refer to ourselves as such, but yeah, I mean, that's the idea, is to, to try to make it as accessible as possible. I mean, I like to throw the ball a little bit over your head to make you jump a little <laughs> bit. And, you know, if I send you skirting off the Wikipedia once per episode, that's not so bad. Right? Or several times per episode. And the recommendations
0: are always very, uh, very appreciated as well. <laughs> some of which are related and some of which are not, which is, which is interesting. Right, right, right. So, Kaiser, we, we always start the show by asking people why they do what they do, why their subject, why their particular medium. And so we'll start off asking you why China, and why podcasting, and then why the China Project. How did you How did you get here?
1: Sure, yeah. So why China is pretty easy. Um, I actually, you know, my I'm ethnically Chinese. My folks were both born on the mainland, went to Taiwan, and uh, raised us really all four of the children to be pretty closely connected to China, to our heritage. And uh, I think I was blessed enough to have grown up kind of feeling. Uh, a rightful inheritance to these two civilizational traditions or whatever, um, to feel bicultural. And I took my first trip there when I was a lad of 15 in 1981, and then five years later went again. This time I had finished my sophomore year of of college and saw the difference and just the the delta between 1981 Beijing and 1986 Beijing was, it was just insane. And it was clear to me that I had to try to, you know, secure a front row seat to that. So it, I changed my course of study. I had been working on Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and uh, yeah, just started to refocus just, you know, still as an undergrad, uh, taking more Chinese history, Chinese politics classes and uh, starting to try to pick the language back up again. And then headed off there as soon as I graduated in, in 88. Uh, and by then I was hooked. I mean, it was, it was very clear. I, I, I planned to go on to graduate school in Chinese studies after that. I, I eventually did. Uh, so why why uh podcasting really in twenty ten, in in maybe March of twenty ten, I was just in one of those beery conversations in a bar with Jeremy Goldcorn. Both of us were, you know, still we were listening to podcasts. It was the early age of the, you know, ubiquitous smartphone. And I don't think the podcast app had even yet appeared on the iPhone, but I had one and we were just sort of talking about what podcasts we listened to. And both of us came to the realization that there weren't any good ones yet on China, and both of us were kind of were talkers. We knew a lot of the people who we would want to interview. We were both curious fellers, so we uh, decided we would co-host one, and just uh, went for it. I mean, there was just really no hesitation. Just a couple of weeks later, we were sitting in the studio recording our first show, and 13 years later, we're still doing it. Uh, six years into it, though, we got acquired by what was then called Sub China, and has since and gratefully changed its name to The China Project. And we've both been a part of that organization. Jeremy now oversees all the, you know, editorial for the thing. And I am sort of the, the, you know, supremo of our whole podcast network, which is a lot of fun. It's it's a medium that I enjoy. Why podcasting? I mean, it's really pretty simple. I, mean, I feel like so much nuance gets lost even in, in print media. You just need to have longer conversations about this stuff. So it started off focused very much on journalists and on sort of the context that they weren't able to bring into the story, the the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, um, just, just a, a chance to unpack at greater length and in greater depth. And I found that this was really a useful contribution to the overall conversation. And so we just kept it going and focused not on the breaking news of the day, but on things that hopefully had longer shelf life. So when you
0: went to China after you graduated um, from Berkeley, what were you doing? What was your initial route in? And I ask this because, you know, I teach undergraduates uh, every day in my classes who are are looking, they want to go to China, they want to go to Korea, they want to go to Japan after they graduate. And, And they're looking for that avenue for how they can get there in some way that's,
1: you know, hopefully being gainfully employed. So what was your initial, initial route in? Well, it was special circumstances back then. So when I was in college, I had been playing in a band, a progressive rock band called Freefall. Uh, and my best friend, who was my freshman roommate at UC Berkeley, who now lives here in Madison, Wisconsin, and who I just saw last night, uh, he's you know, a fantastically gifted mu- musician named Drew Sabo. Um, Drew and I had, um, we, were just sort of nursed this idea that we were going to go to China and, and play in a rock band. I graduated a semester before he did and, and got out here first and then, you know, reported about my glorious successes having landed on what was essentially a low gravity planet where my stubbornly mediocre skills on guitar were able to get me a lot further than I deserved. But, um, yeah, that was, that was it. My, my cover story was I was, you know, studying Chinese and, and I, I kind of did that. Yeah. But half-assedly, um, I, I didn't it wasn't until later that I really buckled down and and really you know tried to study it in a more formal way but yeah i think that that you know the 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 passion and the interest should take you there first i mean i think it should be uh whatever you you are you know genuinely interested in doing rather than just sort of a homework version of it that that should should make you uh you know should get you there so Whatever it is that you do, find, I mean, I think the hobbyist's route. is The (laughs) the hobbyist's route.
0: Okay. Now, um, when you, you, after your first stint in China, you came back to graduate school um, at the University of Arizona. I wonder, since also I think many of our listeners of this podcast are graduate students here at UW, can you talk about your decision both to go to graduate school and then your
1: decision to also leave graduate school? Sure, I I really thought that I was going to be an academic. I mean, that was my my goal. I think that by the time I of my junior or senior year of college, it just seemed like such an attractive option to me. I mean, I was so enamored with uh, the the TAs that I had and and the life that they seemed to have. I mean, just a, a life of scholarly contemplation, where you know, and then you know, what tenure professors were able to do it seemed very attractive to me and it still does and I still find that that to be the world I, I like to interact with the most of all the worlds out there. So it, it just was sort of self definition. Um my grandfather had been a pretty eminent historian and uh it was a- another one of those sort of career options that was reputable <laughs> you know, Chinese American families. You can be a doctor or a lawyer or an engin- an engineer and you know or an historian. If you're a college professor, that's perfectly fine. And so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, that wasn't the reason for me, but um, I, I had a clear idea that I wanted to go on to graduate school. I thought I would do a couple of years in China to get my language in shape and to explore those kind of crazy opportunities that China of the late 80s offered, but I went tumbling out prematurely. Um, I had my, you know, my GRE book and uh, my, all my application packets I was going to, you know, apply to the University of Washington, to Stanford, to UC Berkeley, all you know, all the good China programs on the West Coast. Uh, but then I came back, you know, didn't have an apartment in Berkeley anymore. I had gone, you know, just kind of had unexpectedly had having to leave China after, after Tiananmen. And so Arizona was where my parents' home was. And so I just you know, embarrassingly just went, went there. Uh, fortunately, the University of Arizona had at least one very eminent scholar who I wanted to study under, uh, Alan S. Whiting. And he took me under his wing and really spent you know gave me a ton of his time. Uh he was really the doyen of American studies of Chinese foreign policy. And so I w- was his boy. Um he convinced me to stay on after my master's degree. Uh, I you know wanted to fly fly the nest, but he he basically told me, "Look, you'll finish, you know, you're, you're, you're you 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 kind of already have a very clear idea of your dissertation topic. I like it. You know, let's do this." And uh you know, you'll be out of here. You'll finish your PhD well ahead of your 30th birthday and, and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, he convinced me. I think it was a mistake. I think if I had gone elsewhere, I might have stayed in academia. But the problem wasn't with the faculty. Uh, there were wonderful people that I was working with. It, it was just I didn't have many peers. There just weren't people who I could, you know, go have happy hour drinks with and talk about my work after, after you know, on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so, yeah, eventually... Uh, When the opportunity presented itself to go back to China to rejoin the band that I had been playing in. And, you know, there was a pretty strong incentive to go. So, yeah, I I ended up just dropping that and going back to China. And I don't I don't regret it. I think that I was kind of faced at that point with really buckling down and spending a lot of hours in the stacks. Uh, And I'm a pretty, you know, sociable, gregarious person. I find that you know doing what I'm doing now gives me a lot of the upside of being a graduate student. That is, you know, being able to study just a huge range of topics that I'm interested in, uh, but only having to do it for a couple of weeks at a time, getting as into it as I want to, reading you know books, sometimes multiple books on a topic, uh, before sitting down to interview somebody, but not having to, you know, while away days and days and have my, my sort of you know, vitamin D deficiency, Or months yeah. or years. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> right.
0: Before seeing the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, the happy hour because one thing we've instituted here at SEAS this year is a happy hour for graduate students. So uh, I, I hope all the graduate students listening, I will see you at the next happy hour where we can engage in this uh, this kind of conversation that maybe would have kept well in graduate school.
1: I would love to be there for that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, on uh, Seneca, you interview a truly wide range of guests. You know, there's academics, there's also policymakers, journalists. I, I even saw an interview with a brewer. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you prep for these different guests as they come on your show? Is it is it a different process depending on who you're interviewing?
1: Yeah, for the brewer, you want I had it not <laughs> uh, No, I, I yeah, it's a different process. It depends. I mean, sometimes it's just focused on a paper or a couple of papers, and it doesn't take a ton of of, you know, reading preparation. Sometimes it's, you know, a 500-page book. And I have a pretty strict rule for myself where I read the book. If I'm going to interview somebody, you know, who's taken all that time and effort to write the book, I'm going to show them respect and, and actually read the thing. So sometimes it takes a long time. Fortunately, my boss is happy to, you know, count those hours spent reading as as, as work. So um, it, it can take a lot of time. I mean, writing questions is another thing that I think take some time. You, it, it may be sound to you like I'm extemporizing, uh, but actually I'm quite scripted. I, I spend a lot of time, I write all, a lot more questions than I usually need and you need to have that kind of ability to to skip forward or backward depending on what the person says. And just finding the right way to use the question to present kind of contextual or background information uh, because you have a script in front of you, you can do it really economically. Whereas, you know, you don't want your guest who who, you know, to, to to provide all the, the background information that instead they should be focusing on just delivering that gem of insight uh and so you try to make the question such that that's what you set the person up to do and uh you, you don't want to write o- open-ended questions that allow them to gas on too long like I'm doing right now <laughs> i'm i'm taking notes here
0: for my uh, my future <laughs> my future episodes so you've you've been doing this, you know, hosting co-hosting the Seneca podcast for thirteen years, yeah. uh, hundreds and hundreds of episodes. How has the dialogue about China changed from when you started this podcast to uh, about where it is right now?
1: Yeah, well, it, it's I mean, on my end, it's gone from p- pretty you know happy go lucky to almost desperate. I mean, I, I'm I'm I feel like I'm fighting this rear guard action of you know camp reasonable. um, and I, I make no pretense. I mean, I bring on people specifically to advance uh, a, a point of view that I think really needs to be heard, which is, you know, let's be sure, clear-eyed and everything about you know, China and challenges that are presented by China. But, you know, we're sleepwalking into war right now, and that is just something that scares the bejesus out of me. And I really want to use this platform as much as I can to bring back, you know, reason and, and, and some you know moderation into the conversation, so I deliberately find people who do represent what I think are well thought through reasonable positions that aren 't you know from the d c blob necessarily right?
0: yeah and and I think that is one of the reasons why I enjoy listening to your podcast so much is is I feel like it's it's really helps my own psyche and sense of optimism that you do find these people <laughs> you find you find the people from camp reasonable that uh, frankly, are, are not highlighted in, in so many other places.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm, that's what
0: I'm hoping to do, yeah. <laughs> so for, for someone you know like me or maybe some of other, other of your listeners who have only been listening to you for two or three of the 13 years you've been podcasting, I listened to you on Google Podcasts, and so on the Google Podcast feed it shows 399 episodes. Wow. I, I know that there's even more than that. So for people who started maybe listening to you in the last few years— What is, what are a few of the best episodes of your back catalog that we should be going back to and listen to either because they're just intrinsically interesting or because they have a particular relevance to maybe the way the dialogue has gone today? You know, so some of the
1: ones from the early, early catalog, we've actually revived. We, 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 you know, put them onto the, the Apple podcasts feed under the China project. You can, you can get to them now. They're there, um, I think I, I went through, and, and the ones that I really liked from the early days, I, I managed to keep. A lot of them are, just frankly, embarrassing, and re- require me to, to, you know, bleep too much in order to keep our, our clean rating on Apple. Um, so I haven't bothered with those. Other than that, though, I mean, no, uh, recent, so from the last six years or seven years, I, I would say uh, one of them is a three-parter, a whopping three-parter that we did with Chaz W. Freeman Jr., who was, you know, instrumental in the U.S. opening to China. He was actually. Nixon's interpreter at the famous, uh, you know, dinner with Mao. Uh, he is somebody who has personal experience of so many Chinese leaders over a, a large swath of time. He was later, um, he has a really interesting diplomatic career. He was the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, for example, but he's never really lost his China roots. And we did a three-part interview with him in his home in D.C. that was a lot of fun. It's it's um, He's a fantastic storyteller, and it's just a really compelling character. Not everyone loves his politics. Uh, he's sort of the panda hugger's panda hugger, but uh, he's, he's really great. Uh, another is Sidney Rittenberg, the late Sidney Rittenberg, who was really the, the man who stayed behind. He was uh, a- an American who went over with the U.S. Armed Forces in the 1940s uh, to China, ended up uh, you know, in Yan'an with Mao himself and uh, was uh, struggled against and persecuted, spent... Many, many years of his life in solitary confinement in Mao's China was released after the fall of the Gang of Four and ended up still devoting a lot of his life to China. Uh, He passed away just a few years ago, but he was one of the most remarkable men I've ever met and uh, spent. We did did a good two-part interview with him in his home in Scottsdale, Arizona uh, some years back and definitely check that out. But more recent ones, I would say maybe a surprising one is one that isn't even specifically about China. It's a book that was written uh, it was it's about a book that was written called Six Faces of Globalization by Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp, and it's really about thinking, but in this case it's very anchored in a in globalization which of course is itself. I mean China is the poster child or the arch villain of the, the tale of globalization depending on how you see it. And that episode is really it was part of this kind of thinking about thinking about China series that I was doing. and um, Anthea and Nicholas are just brilliant. they they are people who who think a lot about how to think and about integrative complexity. And they introduced me to a lot of books that have gone on to be you know really formative in the way that I approach things. So check that out. and she's gonna be guesting on the show again. In the not too distant future, so look out for her. And then finally, I have to give a shout to Jessica Chen Weiss. I've interviewed her a couple of times, but maybe the one that you want to listen to is the more recent one we did with her. Uh, that's about a piece she did in Foreign Affairs called "Avoiding the China Trap." Um, and one more that's outside of the realm of politics. So I'll throw in there just because I just enjoyed the conversation so very much. It was about a book called "Kingdom of Characters," which is about you know how Chinese, little Chinese language. Was able to you know be integrated into the modern world of of telegraphy and of of print and of typography and of eventually you know the internet and the mobile internet. Uh, it's called the Kingdom of Characters and it's by Jing Tzu of Yale University. And I just had such a delight talking to her. That's why I mean we just were very much on the same page and and had a good rapport. Uh, it was more, one of the more enjoyable conversations and it should be uh, one that's fun to listen to because it's not
0: about politics. Thank you very much for those, Kaiser, and I'll be adding those to uh, my listening queue later today. <laughs> and, and as a historian, especially the first two you referenced just sound incredibly fascinating. So as you know, you've been doing this for over a decade, as you think about maybe what might unfold in the coming decade of Chinese current affairs, of U.S. relations with China, of China's relations with the rest of the world... Uh, what what are sources that you might have for optimism in, in this unfolding decade? And and what are reasons maybe to be pessimistic? Or can, can you find
1: reasons for both maybe, for, for both opinions? I can. Good. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to enumerate all the multitude of reasons to be pessimistic because, you know, anyone can open a newspaper and, and see those. What are the reasons to be optimistic? I mean, look, I, I've seen us recover before. I mean, I've seen us come back from the brink. I've seen, uh, I mean, I didn't see it personally, of course. But, you know, Edward R. Murrow is a reason for optimism. The Army McCarthy hearings are a reason for optimism. Uh, the way that, you know, the Nixon and Kissinger opening to China unfolded is a reason for optimism. I think that um, the electoral defeat of Donald Trump in 2020 was a reason for optimism. There, I mean, Look, this this country doesn't always make the wrong decision. Uh, I, if if it did, I don't think I could, could you know could stomach living here anymore. I think I, I have I do still have a, a faith, however misplaced, however naive, uh, that eventually we we kind of come to the right decision and do the right thing. And yeah, I mean, I know that that uh, it, that may be a lot of wishful thinking ladled on there, but <laughs> I I. I think that there are so many people who I know in my own circles uh, who are the most knowledgeable and also the most reasonable. And I have to think that there will we will come to recognize the enormous disconnect right now between uh, the people who truly are uh, well informed and who have put in the time and the effort to understand, China and the US relationship with China, the the gap between how they think about things and the so-called consensus that's formed on the Hill or in other branches of government about China, we'll come to realize that there's a reason why th- these these two positions are so far apart. And I think that the w- wiser camp will ultimately prevail before we do anything too suicidal. I think also just the 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 sheer horror the scale of horror that would unfold were this really to if neither side blinks in this game of chicken uh is is enough to dissuade us from anything too catastrophic we've seen that how that's played out before
0: kaiser well thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for informing us through the work that you do at Seneca. And I encourage anyone listening to this to go right now and subscribe to the Seneca podcast where you can hear Kaiser interviewing his guests from Camp Reasonable on a weekly basis. So thank you so much for
1: joining us. Kaiser. Thank you, David. Thank you. And uh, it's lovely to be here in Madison. And uh, I hope to, to have a chance to meet many of, of the people in your department. And uh, I I'll look, I'll look forward to coming back. All right.
0: We'll, we'll look forward to having you back. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo, Performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino